Good morning, my name is Agnes. I'm here to read the Bible. The Bible passage is taken from Luke chapter 21, verses 5 till 38. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles at the back. Please grab one, it's our gift to you. Luke chapter 21, verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dread dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against his people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. 
Each day, Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. I'm one of the pastors here, and I've got the joy of opening up God's Word this morning for us. So please open it up to Luke chapter 21, as we're going to have a look at the Gospel of Luke. We're starting a new sermon series. Over the last couple of years since I've been here, we've been slowly working our way through the Gospel of Luke, chunks of chunks. Here, one of the things we do at Toon Gabby is we want to work through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And so what we do today, we come across... Um, Luke chapter 21. And so we're going to have a look at it. We're going to preach it. We're going to see what God says for us, which means there is occasions where we come to difficult passages. Now, I had Ruth chapter 3 a couple of weeks ago, and somehow I've scored Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21 is a little bit of a difficult passage. Among scholars and Bible commentators, this is one of the most difficult passages to understand in the Gospel of Luke. It's actually quite difficult. Now, if you're here today and you're a seeker, Maybe you're not a Christian and you just sort of want to know what we're about. Can I encourage you to hang in there? Not every passage in the Gospel of Luke is going to be this detailed and, and trying to work it out. If you're a Christian here today as well, we're going to attack this passage. But at the same time, here's something we need to as brothers and sisters in Christ when we come to a difficult passage like this is, we cannot be dogmatic on this passage. We can't be arrogant to think that you've got every little detail worked out in this passage because you should go and write a book about it and you'd sell heaps of copies because most scholars all have slightly different understandings of this passage. In one verse here this week, I've got a volume on Luke, the best bloke who's the commentator on Luke. It's that big, two volumes, that big. It comes to one verse in here. He gives six ways you can interpret that verse, six ways. He gives you, I'm number six. So I'm convinced of number six. However, number five, four and three, I'm pretty convinced of that I could go as well. And I go like, oh. So that means for us, we need to be humble as we come to this passage. But here's one thing I can tell you about this passage. Even though there's some difficulties in it, the application is really the same. And so let's ask God now to help us as we come to this, um, yeah, incredible passage for us that brings hope today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your word now and we ask that your spirit will open our eyes, soften our hearts and to see what you have for us from this passage. That is a little bit difficult. It's a bit sometimes murky, or what exactly is, is Jesus talking about? Father, I ask that we'll just get a little bit more clarity today, that as we leave this place, we'll live for you and know what it's like for us to live in this world and what it is to live for Jesus. And so we ask you to help us, we pray today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I go to bed every night and I'm not worried about whether my place will be flattened by an earthquake. I go to bed every night. I'm not worried about a volcano erupting and covering us in lava. I'm in Australia. I don't worry about those things. But around the world right now, there are men and women, boys and girls, who go to bed every night and they are worried about an earthquake flattening their home. Worried about, will this volcano one day come alive and, and, and cover our home in lava? I remember when I was overseas, I was in, in New Zealand in 2015 in Christchurch and I saw the devastation of the earthquake that had happened there. Suburbs completely moved to another place, flattened and moved for safety. I was in Turkey and Greece earlier this January, as you know, and as I walked through the streets of Turkey, I'm reminded of the real reality of earthquakes. 
as I got to go and see some of the, the cities in which Paul and John and, and those men and, and women walked in the first century, I was confronted constantly with the reality of earthquakes. As I walked the streets of Ephesus, I saw this old house where people dashed out of the home, freaked out because an earthquake came and it covered their home. As I went through Laodicea, like I've got photos of where you see this domino effect of where earthquakes hit. In the, in the first century, in Rome, all those cities, earthquakes were something people were afraid of. They would come. In 60 AD, Laodicea was hit by an earthquake that just flattened the city. They had to rebuild it. You know, they're so wealthy that Rome, see, Rome was in the business of helping cities out that had earthquakes. They would send money. They'd send help when these things happened because it was a tragic thing. But later, see, said, no, we're wealthy enough. We can rebuild on our own. We'll remove or we'll, we'll restructure. And as I was there in Laodicea, you can see the extent to which earthquakes devastate the landscape. Is it meant to be like that? Now, as I was remembered, I was, in, I was reminded of Pompeii. In 79 AD, it was covered by a volcano. It, and we know about it. We learn about it at school because of history. But I never knew that there was all these other cities around which also were affected by the same volcano and wiped completely out. 61, 62 AD, they had an earthquake. 60, in 79 AD, they had an earthquake. Now, for us, I don't go to sleep worrying about earthquakes. And I wonder for us as Aussies in Australia, I wonder if we've become a bit desensitized to some of the realities that the rest of the world lives in. That reality, like in Turkey right now, that people are going to, and, and they go to bed wondering, will another earthquake happen? As I talk with tour guides, as I talk with people in Turkey, I still remember this vivid moment as this man, he looked down and he said, that's because of an earthquake. And he looked us in the eyes and he says, you know what I am most afraid of in this world? An earthquake. And I come home and they get hit by an earthquake. Now, I wonder if we become desensitized to that reality of that reality in the world of pain and loss like that. Is it meant to be like that? We may not be asking those questions, but I wonder if we might be asking the questions that we're not going to bed worried about earthquakes, but I wonder if we're going to bed worried about the next doctor's appointment, the next doctor's, the next scan after scan. You're living from doctor's appointment to doctor's appointment, from chemo treatment to chemo treatment, and you wonder, is it meant to be like this? Is it meant to be as you go to bed? You go to bed and you remember that a close friend dropped dead three months ago and you still go to bed and you feel the pain and the grief and the mourning of that death. Is it meant to be like that? Or maybe here's a day you've moved here. You've moved to Australia to get a good job, to get your kids a great education so that they get a great uni and so they get a great job and it hasn't turned out that way. You've packed everything up and it doesn't turn out like that and you think, is it meant to be that way? Is it meant to be like that? And in a way, I think as we come to Luke chapter 21, Jesus is actually really real with all of us. He doesn't try to skim over and cover reality. As we ask those questions, is it meant to be like this? Is this world meant to be like this? And Jesus, in this moment, he's, he's actually really real with, with his disciples. And I think he's actually real with us about the realities of this world. See, we've come to the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has just entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Prior to that, he's been teaching and healing, showing and proving to us that he's the Son of God. In chapter 9 of Luke, he says, take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. 
Jesus says, well, Luke tells us that Jesus then, he sets his eyes towards Jerusalem. Jesus is headed to the cross. And so here he is, he's headed to the cross. He's coming through the city gates. And, it's part, and, and people are cheering, Hosanna, great, here's our king. And Jesus weeps. Because see, the Israelites, they're in this position and if they think that Jesus, that their Messiah who will come, will set them free, who will give them happiness, they'll kick Rome off, off the, the throne and they'll get their city back and, and life will be happy ever after with their king on the throne. And Jesus weeps. And then he engages the religious leaders of the day. We see that he engages them in the temple courts. He engages those who are religious in nature, a bit like those who come to church every Sunday, who read their Bible, and they think that their church attendance and their serving gets them right with God, that God's going to be more pleased. And he, he hits them head on. And then we get to today's passage, where the disciples are in awe of the temple. And so today... Jesus is going to be real with us and I have four things about what Jesus is real with us about. There's four things in which he gives us a reality check. And the first one is the reality of suffering. There's four things. And the first one is the reality of suffering. He's real about it. Now, I have the privilege of taking funerals. And when you take a funeral, there's a couple of things we try to achieve in a funeral. It's to give thanks to God for that person's life to help those who come along to mourn and to grieve. We want to give people the opportunity to hear the hope of the resurrection in Jesus. And I also want people to face the reality of their own death. I think it's actually good to have the coffin in because it makes us look and see that coffin and reminds us that one day I too will be in that coffin. So when I die, the coffin's going to be in. Not because I just want you, but it's to make us face the reality that we are really going to die. And here, Jesus is real. He says, there's a reality of suffering for you guys. See, in the context, they're, they're walking in the temple court. It was huge. For decades, King Herod, right? He's not a King Herod. He renovates and builds the temple. He covers it in gold. He gets the finest marble from around the region, and he gets it polished so fine that it has a mirror finish. So can you imagine this, this spectacle of the temple on the hill in Jerusalem? And everyone's in awe of it as they come. And these disciples are like, yeah, wow. And Jesus knows that they're talking about it. They're remarking about it. And Jesus is pretty quick to go, well, I'm going to tell you something. See, for the Israelites, the temple was a place where their religion, their life, their happiness, all their whole being was tied up in that place. And Jesus says, well, look at verse 6. As for what you see here, the time will come when, you, when not one stone is going to be left on another. Now, some of the stones were 20 metres long. They weighed over 100 tonnes. And not one of them is going to be left. It's going to be flat. And I wonder how those disciples in that moment felt about that. Because they're expecting Jesus to go, yeah, I'm amazed at that temple. I'm amazed by that. But how did they feel? I wonder if they felt like, oh, but our whole life is tied up there. Isn't that meant to be our hope, our happiness, our dreams for our, for our country and for the city of Jerusalem that will be a hill, city on a hill and, and all these things? Will that be our hope? Or maybe they're wondering as well, going, well, hang on, because if the temple's going to be flattened, that means that probably the whole city of Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. 
Do you see, it's not just going to affect the temple. To have something like that happen has to just not just affect the temple, man. It's going to affect a lot more of society. And I wonder if they're wondering, is that going to affect me? Is that going to be in our time? Give us a sign, Jesus. We want to know what's going to lead up to that. And Jesus doesn't really answer that for them. Do you notice he's, he's, he doesn't give them, right, here's the full steps. But he, he actually gives them pastoral advice. Do you notice that in verse 9? When you hear of wars and uprisings, don't be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end, it's not, that's not going to be the end. Don't worry, the earthquake's not the end. The wars are not the end. Then he said to them, Nation, like nations are going to be rise against nation. All through the 60s and 70s, there's, there's wars all the time. There's going to be great earthquakes, famines, pestilence, fearful events, great signs. And, 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 and these things, they're going to happen. But it's not the end. Because what Jesus is saying here is he's saying that the, the temple on Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. But he says there's a reality of suffering that's involved for all of us, for his disciples. But not only is there a reality of suffering, because he says later on, he says they flee, but there's also that reality of persecution. Did you see that as it was read? That before the fall, there's going to be persecution. But before all this, they're going to seize you and persecute you. Now, who's the you there? It's the disciples of Jesus. They're going to hand you over to the synagogues, put you in prison, and you'll be brought before the kings and governors all on account of my name. Now, I, I don't know about you, but is there something familiar there? Maybe you've read more parts of the Bible. Is there something that's standing out here? Because see, the Gospel of Luke isn't just a one book. It's got a sequel called the book of Acts. And so as we read this and as we get to Luke chapter 24, we get to Acts 1, 2, 3. And guess what we encounter? Exactly what Jesus says here. Stephen, Peter, they all come before the kings and the governors. Paul comes before the councils. Here's a photo on the screen of when I was in Corinth. See that, see that man's, that person's walking and you see that rock ledge behind you? On top of that is exactly where Paul would have stood before Gallo in ancient Corinth. Why was he standing there? Because of the name of Jesus. See, Jesus is reminding them that you're going to face persecution. Next slide, thank you. See, there's a reality of suffering. You're not, you're not prone to have not have it. And, and I think that's actually good news for us. Because Jesus is real, that the world that we are, we are in is broken and marred by sin. The gospel is real because it tells us that Jesus broke into this world to break the curse of sin and death. That he ascended and that one day he is going to return and put all these things right. Because see, if this 70 or 80 years or if you get 50 years, whatever it is, that short period on life, if that's all we ever have and that's all there is to life, then we can't bear up under the suffering. We need to avoid suffering. We can't go through it and therefore it can't be right for us to go through it. But if there is something more than this world, there must be a greater purpose in our suffering then. And I wonder, do we worry about suffering because we believe that we shouldn't be facing suffering? And so we start to doubt and think, is God punishing me for what I'm going through? Or as some false teachers will say, you just need to believe a little more. That's why you're not healed. That God really does want you to have Great cars, great houses and gold watches and, and, and live richly ever after. Whereas God doesn't really promise that. That's not the pinnacle of life. He, but 
Romans 8, it reminds us that he promises that in all things. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. So the greater purpose, the greater good there is to become more like Jesus. He's making you through what we're going through. He's making us more and more like Jesus. Romans chapter 8 says, creation is groaning. The reasons we see these things happen, the reason earth, it's creation is groaning. And at the same time, it says, our bodies, I don't know about you, but my body's starting to groan and I'm only 38. Our bodies are groaning, that they're groaning after our new bodies and after the resurrection and the return of Christ. And in a way, I think what Jesus is saying, it's always going to be like this until he returns in the clouds. He never promises to his followers here that they're going to be immune from suffering in this life. He doesn't promise to you, if you follow me, you'll be immune from sickness, cancer and persecution. He doesn't say, take up your cross, deny yourself, die to self and that you'll walk through life without any more struggles in the world. Or that voila, I've become a Christian and my whole life's going to become the best life now. But in fact, I think what's so good about this passage is Jesus is just real with reality. He's saying, hey, these things are going to happen. Don't worry that you're suffering. Don't be perplexed by it. Look at verse 14 as he says to them about their persecution. But make up your mind not to worry. Make up your mind not to worry about these things. And why can we make up our mind? Because we know the times that we're living in between the ascension of Jesus and his return. We're in that time and these things are part of life. Make up your mind not to worry. It is good for us to mourn, to mourn the state of this broken world. But it isn't there to define our worries. Because I love Psalm 23, which, where the Lord is my shepherd. It doesn't say you go through the valley of the shadow of death. It doesn't say you go through the darkest valley alone. It doesn't say that as you go through suffering, as you go through cancer, as you go through things in this world, it doesn't say you're actually going through it alone. See, Psalm 23 reminds you that as you go through it, God is with you. Jesus says, just before his ascension, he says to his disciples, I am with you always to when? To the end of the age, till I return. I'm always going to be with you. That means that as we go through what we go through, Jesus is right there with us. He's given us his Holy Spirit. It means that you're not walking alone. It means you're not traveling alone. It means you're not running the race alone. It means you're not suffering alone. In fact, Jesus knows what it is to suffer. Unlike you and me, we often fall down in suffering. Jesus stayed standing. And so he can empathize with us as we suffer. He knows what it's like. He's been through it. Nothing can touch your destination. Nothing can change it. Nothing can remove it. They may take your life, but they can't take your soul. That's really what verse 18 is saying. But not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. Life there is not the flesh, it's the soul. Because you think, hang on, because some of those disciples did die. So they would have lost their hair. But it's, it's, it's that idea of they may take your life, but they won't take your soul. See, Jesus, is, he gives us reality. It's not the end. There's a reality of suffering. But secondly, what's incredible here is he's actually real about the certainty of judgment as well. 
We're reminded in this passage that God is a God of judgment and justice. Why? Because of verses 20 through. Because Israel, the people of God, they've rejected God. The Jews have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They've turned their back on him. And verse 20, see, the earthquakes, the persecution and the, and the wars, they're not the sign that, that here's the end of Jerusalem. No, no, don't worry. That's not the end. The end's when Jer Rome surrounds Jerusalem, verse 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by the armies, you'll know then that the desolation is near. That idea of desolation is it's an abomination. Like in, in, back in, in, in BC, one of the kings came through. They set up an altar to Zeus in the temple, outside the temple, and they sacrificed pigs in the Holy of Holies. Guess what Rome did in 70 AD, three days out from Passover? They surrounded the city. They eventually destroyed and they sacrificed pigs in the Holy of Holies. See, here, look at verse 20. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Why? Verse 40. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of, of all that has been written. Here, it's, it's, it's upon the Jewish nation here for their rejection. It's judgment by God because of the fall, the fall of Jerusalem, 70 AD. Now, as we think about the certainty of judgment, why, why did I say at the beginning this passage is difficult? Here's the reason why I think it's actually a little bit of a difficult passage to talk about, because it appears like Jesus is talking about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which is a historical fact. At the same time, though, he seems to be talking about when Jesus returns. And so sometimes you start to think, hang on, is he talking about the fall of Jerusalem here, or is he talking about his return? And that's where the little bit of chaos comes from in this passage. But here's what I think. I, I, I'm definitely convinced that verses 5 to 24 is all about the fall of Jerusalem. Verses 25 to 28 is definitely about the return of Jesus. And I'm pretty convinced probably that verses 29 on, he flips back and he sort of woves in and out. And then he goes back to the fall of Jerusalem to those disciples. Truly, I tell you. But don't worry about that too much because what Jesus is doing, he's woven these things. So what's going on about the fall and the return? Now, I was... In, Today I've got illustrations all from my trip overseas. But when I was in Israel, in Jerusalem, I went to En Gedi. It's this gorge and there's this little, little spring that flows through. And so I'm at the bottom of this gorge and it said to the En Gedi spring and I thought, I want to go there. And it had an arrow pointed up the hill. There's this cliff edge that goes all the way along and I could see the path. And it said at the end of that was En Gedi, the spring. So I've seen the end of that ridge and I've only got a little bit of time, so I'm sort of half running, half scampering, overtaking people. And like, there's the end, right? There's the end of that ridge. And as I look around, there is going to be Angeti, the spring. And so I get to the edge of that ridge. I, all I can see is this ridge in front of me. I get to the end and I poke my head around. And I'm like, oh, there's another ridge that goes even further. I'd only gone half the way. See, I think that's what Jesus is doing here. You see, he gives us a picture of Jerusalem and the fall, and that's really big. Here it happens in history. And what he does is he pops his head, gets us to pop our head around and see his return. See, what happened in Jerusalem was certain. It was big judgment. And just as certainly as that happened, as big as that was in history, his return's going to be even bigger. The judgment's going to be even bigger. So he wants us to see that. See, the sacking and the attack on Jerusalem was absolutely horrific. As certain as the fall of Jerusalem happens, you can be as certain as the return of Jesus who's going to come back and judge. 
And it happened in 70 AD in Jerusalem. It was horrific. Three days out from Passover, Rome came. They surrounded the city. They starved people. There was no food. There was no drink. There were so many dead bodies in the city of Jerusalem. They had nowhere to bury them. And so they threw them over the walls. Robbers came along and stole things. It got so bad within the city walls of Jerusalem that parents were eating their own children. Cannibalism happened. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, he claims that nearly a million Jews were slaughtered or starved. Now, history books, others would say it's probably 500,000. That doesn't matter. It doesn't really like whether it's 500 or a million. It's, it's real. See, there's, for us here, there's a certainty of judgment. And as I think about the certainty of judgment, I actually think that's, I think we need to say that as good news and bad news. It's good news because in a broken world, fallen, that there's wrongs that need to be paid, where there's bad news for humanity. It means that all the wrongs in this world, because God cannot overlook anything, he can't overlook sin, he can't overlook wrong, all the wrongs, all the crimes, all the sins, they're going to have to be paid for. Justice is going to be sought. See, those horrific war crimes committed, those tragic and horrible murders, all those things that have been done to you, they've got to be paid for and justice will be sought in this life or the next. That's, that's good news that all those things will be put right. But it's bad news for all of us as well because all of us too have sinned. We're all enemies of God. We've all committed crimes. See, God can't overlook it. He has to have it paid for. And it's, and it's that certain that when Jesus returns, it's all going to be exposed. And it's all need to be paid for. And that's why we need to flee and take refuge in Jesus today. That's why we need to flee to him. So that, because God can't overlook it and he put it on his son. And so we take refuge in his son. The certainty of judgment. We take rescue in him. So Eusebius, a historian, tells us that the Christians heeded these words of Jesus to flee. Because in the ancient world, if you're a farmer and war came, guess where you were meant to go? To the city. But here they fled, as Jesus predicted here, and many were saved. And for us to flee the judgment that is to come, we need to run and flee and take refuge in Christ. That's the good news. Okay, there's two more. Here's another reality that Jesus is real about. He's real about the reality of suffering, the certainty of judgment, and he's real about the danger of distraction in this world. There's a danger of distraction. <coughs> and we've got a we've got a new puppy i've had a had a couple of dogs in our in, in my life and and puppies are they're beautiful and they're cute but what have you got to do with dogs you got to train them you got to teach them to walk there's nothing worse than walking your puppy and you see these people who've trained their dogs so well that they're off the leash they watch their owner a dog can come past they go nowhere they smell something they stay with their owner because all the dogs i have guess what they do they run to the other dog. They pull you. They lead you astray all the time. And here's the key, right? To having a good dog is you've got to have Bluetooth connection with them. You've got to spend time with them. You've got to train them so that as you walk along, they don't lead you astray. That they, they, the idea is the dog's always got their eyes on you because you're the boss. And they'll never lead you astray. But all the dogs I have, they lead you astray. And here Jesus is reminding us there's going to be plenty of people in this world who are going to try and lead you astray. 
There is that danger of distraction. Whether it's the 21st century or whether it's in Jesus' day, there have been plenty of people who come along and they claim to be Jesus or they claim to know when the world is going to end. See, in Jesus' day, there was plenty of men who came along and said, I'm Jesus. There was some last century who came along and said, I am Jesus. And people followed them as they were disciples of those people. Men and women come along and they claim that they've cracked some secret code in the Bible so that you can date the return of Jesus. And they claim it's on this date. How many of those people have been right so far? In fact, all they do is they distract Christians from getting on with the business of making disciples of Jesus and living life for him. And what happens is these distractions, these 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 assumptions and codes and all these things that people try to get us to buy into all they do is they consume our energy and take our eyes off Jesus see Jesus we don't live with blind faith Jesus is about us being the Christians who discern it's intellect he wants us to study he wants us to think wisely and here he's saying you need to think wisely because there's a danger of being distracted Don't follow them. See, that that language of follow is discipleship. It's that idea of being a learner. Don't learn from them. We're not to be followers who are tossed back and forth by every new teaching that comes along or every new end time theory or new chart that predicts that this is when Jesus will return. See, Jesus is pretty clear here. Do you want to know when I return? You'll see me in the clouds. Don't worry about those other things. Not to be tossed back and forth, to follow men and women who claim to be the Messiah. See, wars and earthquakes are a normal part of the age we live in. In the last 3,400 years of recorded history, there's only been 268 years without war. That's eight years. If my math is right, that's about eight years out of 100 years. And that's just recorded. So why can we be certain not to fall for these kind of distractions and teachings? Because of the certainty of God's word. It tells us that it's certain. But even his prediction is certain. We see, we, we see that the temple fell. He was right. You'll know the end of Jerusalem when, the, when Rome surrounds it. And so that's reasons. That's why we can be confident of these words in verses 8 to 24. Because it's happened. It's in the history books. It's outside of even the Bible. It's recorded that these things happen. Therefore, we can trust Jesus' word. Don't rush into these things. It's the way it's going to be till the end. If someone comes and says, hey, I think Jesus is going to return now. Tell them, I know he's going to return. I'm one day closer. Tomorrow is one day closer after. I've had people come to me and say, I am 100% sure that Jesus is going to return in my life. I don't think that's wise. That's not wise. Because what's happened is you've been consumed by that rather than by Jesus. And if Jesus says to us, don't be led astray, It means we have a tendency to do it. It's so easy. 
But instead, he says, stand firm. That idea of standing firm in verse 19, it's endurance. As we track so far through the gospel of it, it's really discipleship. It's not sort of standing firm in, in stoic sense of muscular men. No, no, it's just endure by taking up your cross, dying to self, make disciples. There's nothing new about people coming along with new timelines and strange ideas of how the world is going to end that leads people away from Jesus. They distract us. And I reckon the devil probably loves it because it means he doesn't have to distract us from the end goal. Because see, wonder what's consumed you. Because see, if those things start to consume us, if those distractions start to consume us, guess what it leads to? It leads to fear, anxiety, and worry about tomorrow. I wonder how many of us have felt like that maybe over the last couple of years where there's things that have happened and we've started to question, think, oh, I wonder if these predictions are right. And, 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 and rather than us having a sense of not worrying, we've just become really fearful and anxious about tomorrow. We're not, it's, that, that's, don't, don't get caught up in that. Because see, I think in a way, Jesus is really real with us, right? He's real about the danger of distraction. And I actually think point three and point four is probably where most of us may sit a little bit. Whether you sit in point three and you have been caught up in those things and it distracts you, that might be you, but there might also be many of us here today as well who fourthly have been deceived by pleasure, the deception of pleasure. See, he's real about the reality of the deception of pleasure in this world in verse 34. Be careful that your hearts aren't weighed down by the things of this world in food and drink and, and all those things. The deception of pleasure. It just deceives you. Now, when I was in, in Jerusalem, I decided, I, I, well, when I was in Turkey and Jerusalem, I made up my mind because over there, the salesmen, they try and sell you anything. They just pounce you and they're on you. Now, Al will tell you that if you want to sell me a product, I'm not going to give you any pleasure in getting a deal out of it. Like, I'm going to make sure that you've got no idea whether I'll buy it or not. I made up my mind in Jerusalem as I walked through just hundreds of markets. I'm not going to be deceived by these characters who are going to try and sell me this stuff that I could just buy on eBay. And so I'm walking down the street and one bloke says, excuse me, sir, do you want to come and buy some stuff? You're interested. What do you want? You're Aussie. And I said, I'm here to buy nothing. Very clear. So I kept walking. I came back 15 minutes and walked past him. Hey, sir, you're here to buy nothing. We have nothing in your store. Nothing's here. You want to buy nothing? And I'm like, no. He's like, well, you got nothing for you. Come in for nothing. And so I kept walking. I was resolute. And I'm about 100 meters, well, about 200 meters before I'm outside this market. And I knew I wanted to buy Ali something, something beautiful. And there's these beautiful scarves that were made of cashmere. That beautiful, that'd be a great throw on the table or a great thing to wear. And I thought I like it, but I had no cash. And in my mind, I wasn't going to buy it that day. I was going to come back. And I looked at it and boom, there's, oh, they're on me. Sir, you want to buy this? We've got more in here. No, 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 I'm not here to buy anything today. Just tell me how much. No, no, how much do you think? And I said, well, I'll buy you this for it. And you get a bit of bargaining. I said, it's really nice. He said, it's made of cashmere. I thought, that's good. He said, that's really good stuff. Thought, it's made of cashmere. How good is that? I reckon Al would like this. I'll come back. Do you want one or two? Do you want two? No, I just want one. No, you want two. Oh, okay. What will you do? He said, oh, that's a good, okay, that's a good price. I don't have cash. I'm going to come back tomorrow and I'll buy it off you. No, no, no. Well, well you got your card on you now. No, no, no. I'm right. And they put the two things in the bag and they walked me 500 meters to the ATM. Tell me to get the money out. I gave the money and off I went. Now, don't worry, I'm glad I bought this present for Ali. I'm 100% glad. But this was a problem. I got deceived in that moment. 
because they told me it was made of cashmere. It was, 2%. Right? And so it was in that moment of just like, oh, man, now it's beautiful. Don't get me wrong. But I was, it was just the pleasure of touching that cashmere. It was so beautiful in the moment. It was so subtle. I was convinced I wouldn't be deceived. And the pleasures of this world will deceive us into forgetting that Jesus is returning. It's verse 34. Some of you have stopped coming regularly to church. Or you've stopped serving Jesus and you keep telling yourself, it's okay, God wants me to be happy. And before you know it, the long weekends that you have once every six months become long weekends that you have every two weekends. The pleasures of eating out be turn out to being six nights a week. Now, there's nothing wrong with the pleasures of this world, but don't let them deceive you. See, don't let these things deceive you and take your eyes off Jesus. It is okay to have a holiday. It is okay to have a day off. It's okay to enjoy kangaroo meat that's cooked rare. It's okay to enjoy a fine coffee and to drink tea to tea. It's good to enjoy a great curry, but they aren't to consume us and to distract us and to be at the center of our life. They're not to become so weighed down that it, 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 that's what we find our pleasure in and that's it. And we completely forget that Jesus is returning one day. We live as if this is all there is, that if I don't enjoy the gym six days a week, if I don't enjoy the food six, then I'm going to miss out. And we forget that Christ is returning. You might be thinking today that your life will only have meaning if I am loved and well respected by my family and this church. Maybe you think that I'll only find my worth and my pleasure if people are dependent upon me and need me. Maybe you go, I can only find pleasure if I have this particular body image or look. Or I only find pleasure if I have a certain level of wealth, my kids have a certain level of education and I have some great grandchildren. See, that's idolatry. That's the incredible deception of pleasure that takes your eyes off Christ. Like verse 34, I reckon in a way Jesus is he's almost like looking down the timeline of history and he's speaking to every single one of us here at Toon Gabby Baptist Church today. And he says, you know what your greatest threat is? You're going to get weighed down by the pleasures of this world. Pleasures that will start to consume your horizon, your purpose, and eventually your drive. But let's be a church that's not complacent or a church that's apathetic towards the task of making disciples of Jesus. A church that isn't pursuing what everyone else is pursuing, but a church that does not take its eyes off Christ his glory, and off his return. May we be a church who knows the reality of suffering and we face it knowing that Christ is with us. May we be a church where we are people who are living knowing the certainty of judgment and will do whatever we can to point each other to Christ and to flee to him and to take refuge in him. To be a church that's not caught up in the latest distraction about when Jesus will return or false teaching, but to be a church that isn't deceived by the pleasures of this world, but be a church that's fixed on Jesus who say, come Lord Jesus, come. 
Because it's in this gospel of good news of Jesus, it's in this gospel, this grace of God, that God teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to say no to worldly passions, to live self-controlled lives, upright and godly lives in the present age in which Titus, Paul and we live in. As we await the blessed hope of the appearing of our great Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so we don't fret, we don't worry, we don't panic, and we live for Christ. Let's pray. Father, we yearn and look for the day of Christ's return. Help us not to find and seek the pleasures of this world. Lord, may we enjoy what you have given us. But Lord, we pray and plead with you, don't allow us to, to be distracted by those things that we take our eyes off Jesus and we stop living for you and to know the certainty that one day Christ will return on the clouds where every knee, where every tongue, where everyone will bow before him and know that he is Lord. Father, we thank you that you've made him known to us, that we stand here as redeemed people. Lord, may we stand firm in our redemption. May we stand firm to the end. May we not get distracted. And Father, may we be brave enough to remind each other of the, of the, the reality of suffering, the certainty of judgment the danger of distraction and the deception of pleasure. And Father, we pray this for the sake of your Son and for the sake of his glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.